Hi everyone, welcome to PhD Chats, Diversity and Inclusion. I'm Aoife. I'm Amans. And I'm Becky. So welcome everyone to our second ever episode of our podcast. Our guest today is a lecturer in materials at Imperial College London. He's been very vocal against the introduction of application fees for master's programmes at Imperial. So we look forward to talking to him about that and many other areas associated with PhDs. Uh, Hello, I'm Dr Ben Britton. Uh, My pronouns are he and him. I'm based currently, as we're recording, at Imperial College London. I'm a reader in metallurgy and microscopy, and I will be shortly joining the University of British Columbia as an associate professor uh, teaching in manufacturing and materials. I'm talking today as I have a significant interest in the, uh, the journey of a student from undergraduate to postgraduate taught, postgraduate research, furthermore into research professions, both in academia and beyond. Brilliant. Hey, yeah, thank you for being here. Thanks for talking to us. Thank you very much. So um, as you mentioned, you're interested in like the, sort of the general progress of a student. And part of this is your interest in application fees sort of your interest in like why there is application fees. So could you just give us an overview of um, what's ha- been happening at Imperial over the last few months? So during the, uh, the pandemic, the college has decided to introduce an £80 application fee that is levered against all postgraduate taught programmes. So these are typically one year often taught with a significant research fraction. They are used as a gateway, uh, and especially in our disciplines, such as material science, where Students are brought into the discipline, perhaps originally training in a more classical science like physics, chemistry or engineering. The uh, postgraduate application fee acts in my specific thought process. It acts as a barrier. £80 effectively is about seven hours at the London living wage. And the London living wage, if we recall, is set up to enable you to live, not to necessarily thrive. And so that's a huge financial barrier. In many circumstances, this may, you, know, you may just consider that it's a necessary challenge, but let's just imagine that you're a student applying to a number of universities, because not all universities will accept, you know, you'll often have to apply to more than one. So you're perhaps looking at an outline of about, say, £300 for a student towards the end of their undergraduate training, where their financial security is significantly less, they've got a huge student loan, nervousness towards the future, and no guarantee of a placement. This, if we further consider the pathways in academia, there is significant uh, research and pioneered by a small charity called Leading Roots that effectively focuses on the ethnicity gap and specifically systemic anti-black racism across academy, uh, academia and beyond. Piece of statistics so that there is a significant underrepresentation of black students. This is of course echoed across other social and economic classes. There are relationships between ethnicity and social economic class in the UK, though of course I, I caveat that not all black people are uh, of lower social economic class and vice versa. That being said, uh, EPSRC, uh, who are one of the major funders of doctoral training partnerships and, and centres for doctoral training, they effectively often many of the processes for admission will recognise the benefit of a master's taught programme that will effectively raise your sort of tariff or points at entry or access. And so that effectively is immediately putting simply through application, let alone paying for an extra year of fees, where for instance, the career acceleration loans are not sufficient to enable you to live off afterwards 
and especially then when you're you're not actually being paid to pay off that interest. So we're just throwing up barriers that reduce opportunities for people to progress. And specifically, it's a financial in interest, not necessarily on people's interest, capability, or where they want to move. This at a later stage, if we look further forward and we look in the pathways, if you view that, say, a master's thought program is this gateway degree towards, say, middle level management, towards a PhD place, et cetera, we're immediately cutting out a huge fraction of society. And that means those people who are sitting in rooms making decisions, encouraging or inspiring the next generation of students and more, they're not there from those people who are not financially able to access these systems. And so that creates, it sustains this problem where we don't have that pull through, we don't have a recognition of ideas. We also just simply from a, a sort of socially just perspective, we do not have people having a fair access to our education systems. Speaking from a personal perspective, so um, I applied to Oxford and Cambridge when I was applying to my PhDs, and they both have um, sort of like, I think it's 70 and 75 pound application fees, which at the time I could pay, but that was like scraping the barrel. And I was lucky that I was able to pay it, like lots of people wouldn't be able to. So yeah, it is definitely a barrier that I, I think people don't seem to recognize or maybe they do like people at the higher higher up in university management perhaps they just don't recognize that that is a, a lot of money for I students. agree I remember uh, one of the interviews I'm not going to name the the institution or department but when I told them that I'd taken uh, a year out to work they they knew I was applying for a, a position with funding they asked do we not pay you enough when you arrive <laughs> and I was like well you know I I have uh, outstanding debts from being a student. There are application fees. I have to live. I have to eat. I was so taken aback. And this was like in the middle of an interview. And yeah, it's so I think some people are just so out of touch with, with what it costs to live these days. I, I think that goes even further if you then consider, say, mature student. You know, how many people, it's, it, well, it, it is illegal in the UK to recruit to a job and have an application fee that the applicant pays for to have the opportunity to start a job. That is against UK law. The way that we pay recruiters effectively is companies pay recruiters to do that recruitment. Universities have this weird thing, although we are semi-state institutions, that we feel entitled that the access to the richness of the educational experience says you should stump up 80 pounds. I just find that morally reprehensible. And as I say, you know, mature students, you've got, you know, family obligations, if you've got caring responsibilities, if, you know, you're thinking about saving for a deposit, you know, getting on with your life, you know, 21, 22 is sort of that starting, you're thinking about those next steps, speculating on your future, it's, it, it winds me up immensely. <laughs> I think that's one of the things that we kind of talked about. I think a lot of people, if you picture a PhD student, a lot of people do picture typically like young person, like fresh out of college with no caring responsibilities. And that's not the reality for so many people. And even if it's a flat rate barrier of 80 pounds to everyone, everyone doesn't come from the same circumstances and that affects people in different ways. And even like that comment you said, Amans, of do we not pay you enough when you're here? First of all, for a PhD, probably no, to live in places like London and Dublin. <laughs> but also there's so many like costs up front. Like if you're moving to a different place, you've flights, mm. you've uh, paying for a deposit is normally a full month's rent on top of the first month's rent. 
as well as all of the cost of travel yeah. to look at all these different places and try find in london and... they can ask for like two months rent up front as a deposit and that that's an obscene amount because of the rent uh in yeah. london uh, and they're asking for all of this and for someone to make a comment and say we don't pay you enough you know my stipend arrives it, it arrived after i arrived here by maybe like two to three weeks there was that time lag so no uh, i had to really bite my tongue to say you do not pay me enough you do not pay me on time but yeah i had to smile and say oh there's plenty <laughs> As, as an academic in this sort of discussion, I look at it and go, okay, so I may have had to go through, go through some of those things. I don't need to inflict suffering on the next generation. You know, the whole purpose of this is to leave things better than when I started. And so actually recognizing and, and opening up the door to have a, you know, financial hardship discussion, what's going to limit you joining my research group? Because I want to work with you. You know, I have access to money in various bits and pieces, not much, but I have some ways to make things easier. And I, I not shown on the podcast, but I was wincing at this idea of two to three weeks late for a stipend payment. That's crippling. So having said all this about like application fees and the financial barrier to applying, why do you think universities, and these are often top universities, you know, the Oxbridge, the um, like top London unis, why do you think they can justify charging these fees? So I have a lot of correspondence and have been chasing uh, significant bits all the way up to the provost at, at Imperial College. Some of the arguments effectively are that this is not the biggest barrier. And so, for instance, you know, so the fees at Imperial College are typically around 10 to 12,000 pounds for a home or well, a home student used to be home or a youth. Are we chatting post-Brexit? And it's of the order of up to, say, 30,000 pounds for an international student. So people view this as a small part. They view this as, you know, that's not the moral imperative to, to do this. They also view some of it that, you know, frankly, there's no widening participation agenda for postgraduate research in the UK. I would say that broadly, I can definitely say that for postgraduate thought, but it's only sort of recently that, the, that a letter was sent to address widening participation issues as a result of the, the racial reckoning of Black Lives Matter to consider the huge statistical disparity and lack of black students being funded by EPSRC and UKRI as a whole. So I would say that widening participation has not been seen as a priority. The typical areas where we spend the money and resource, and also because the regulation broadly from the Office for Students in the UK, the regulation is pushed against the undergraduate programs. But as I say, going back, the whole of the pathway is important that the people who have access to teaching or subject matter experts who are therefore going to instruct further research to demonstrate which parts of society should have access to opportunity or access to knowledge. That whole story needs to be considered. Of course, if we don't have access to education undergraduates, we don't have access later on, but we end up in this, it's a terrible paradigm, sorry, a terrible description that the leaky pipeline um, but we end up with effectively that we just have a decrease in, in representation of society at each level. Why I say it's terrible, other career outputs are amazing and people that, you know, if they leak out of the system, they are still doing good things. But why can we not hold this representation across the entire pathways through to academics, to, to subject matter experts in the industry and beyond that, that we say we are doing in a training program? When I was in sixth form, um, I did a project about like essentially the leaky pipeline with women in physics. Like, the drop-off is just dramatic. 
and there's lots of reasons for that not just financial yeah you know, kind of the like expected time you put into an academic career is just one like one reason why yeah it's just yeah shocking how, how much that drop off is and like there's a natural drop off because they're like our last PhD positions and master's positions and like undergrad positions but yeah it's not proportional to the number of positions yeah, yeah. Each of those gateways that you've mentioned, the filtering is continually according to people who sort of look like me as a, a white, uh, you know, cisgendered male, look like me and perhaps sound like me with a sort of, a, you know, received pronunciation. I was privately educated in other bits and pieces. I went to very shiny universities and other things. It's not to say I don't deserve my place, but perhaps people like me are overrepresented. And the question then follows is, you know, why are we not promoting other people? up through this who are equally as qualified in this space yes yeah it's a really interesting like, discussion to have about like, almost who, who deserves spot in academia which is logically it's anyone that is able to be an academic that is you know kind of capable and willing um, but it just doesn't work out that way yeah i'd say uh, sort of two bits on that sort of doesn't work out that way i think yes it doesn't work out that way because other people do different things and so part of this is that other careers are more attractive than the academic you know we talked briefly about the cost of studying and you know who needs that financial uncertainty when you know you may not even get your PhD I hope you will do but you may not get your PhD for reasons sometimes out of your control in this process you then may not get the postdoctoral appointment where we probably still don't pay you enough given that at this point you probably had eight years of formal education in tertiary systems and then you know not going to you know not sugarcoating it too much but the number of academic appointments drops thereafter the number of actually you know uh, in the UK, especially non-industrial research positions, we have very few. We have no national labs. And in Ireland, it's very similar. The research institutes, there are very small numbers. There are, of course, some fantastic employers in our sector. You know, Ireland has a huge semiconductor business, for instance. The UK has a relatively large manufacturing base for, for areas of things like that. And, and biomedical, of course, is growing faster every year on year. But yeah, it just challenges that, although we say, you know, not, any fault of your own i'd suggest that the system is supporting this sort of systemic racism this systemic classism this systemic misogyny in this process and you know we're not even going into the non-visible protective characteristics so you know many of the the gender-based issues are often also around pregnancy and maternity leave etc then we have LGBTQ plus issues where, again, there is a co-correlation of a reduction of participation and continuation in STEM disciplines moving forward. And at some point, I just have to look, look on the other side of the table. And when I sit in meetings and these offhand snide comments, et cetera, appear, they're only there because actually there are lots of people who are in our system very happy with the status quo. They are very comfortable they think they've earned their place by right. Many of these people, I'm sure, are fantastic, but it's not a fair game. I think that that comment of like, they're only there because is such like a double-edged sword. And it's something someone said to me once where it was from the perspective of women in science. But, you know, the like the idea of like the token woman or the token whatever disadvantage or minority group it is. And this was like the stereotypical like cisgendered white male saying it. And she shot back going, well, I think you're only here because you're in this position of privilege. And it was like, and everyone in the room kind of stopped and was like, oh, <laughs> it's like, as much as you're saying, oh, you're only there because you're X, Y, Z, 
well, historically, maybe some people are only there because those other people didn't have the option to be there in the first place. I'd say it's, it's more than in some ways. I'd say it is the default position. I'm sure you've thought about or perhaps discussed imposter syndrome and a whole range of this. Imposter syndrome, if you have one or more, and we've not even talked about people at you know, intersectional uh, characteristics and, and things like that. Anyone who is there and looks to be token in this way, trust me, they've fought their way through the system. They have survived. They've made it to the table. You know, they are not there just to be the pretty black face, etc. They are not there because they want to carry and wave a rainbow flag. They're there because they're bloody good and they've dealt with all the shit that everybody else has thrown at them along the way. That's like one of the things we kind of wanted to talk about as well. Apart from, obviously, it's just a morally correct thing to do to give people equal opportunities or to have accessibility and inclusion. It's also good for science. You know, can you kind of talk about that a bit from maybe the academic perspective of why you think it's important apart from it just being the right thing to do? So, yeah, and there's always a risk in this when we start then commoditizing effectively the benefit of engaging with equity and social justice and, and quality, diversity, inclusion and accessibility uh, and indigeneity and colonialism. Sorry, there's a whole range of words that appear in this narrative. From my perspective, I can sort of give personal anecdotes of joys and pleasure of, of engaging with people and having a research group that is, as someone said at a conference, you know, more diverse than is expected. So typically, I think the research group I lead is relatively large. I think there's, there's about 10 PhD students, three postdocs, and typically five master students. So it's about 20 people in total. And then we have visitors. So it's a reasonable large group that we look after. Of the PhD students, typically half of them have done something between undergraduates and postgraduates. So they have experiences, they have connections, they know how industry works, they know what the job market's like, they've done you know, some milk round or graduate jobs in other sectors. For other reasons, they may have done careers. So, so one student effectively was in entertainment for a year and, and you know, he's a fantastic entertainer. Uh, it makes the Christmas party even more fun when he starts doing <laughs> magic tricks, etc. But actually what he brings to this is skills in public speaking, skills in being in spaces that are outside your comfort zone, in having to deal with things that go wrong on the spot. I had another student who was 10 years older than me who graduated. As a, as a supervisor, that's a very interesting dynamic, especially as an early career academic as I was at the time. But actually, again, he had a huge amount of experience working across the energy sector. And his PhD was in nuclear power and, and a, a nerdery abstraction of that in a modeling situation. But again, he gave a talk to the CDT and he talked about the distribution of power across the system, how frequency managing, how substations work, this whole range of engineering that's really important when we take our head out of that you know, very narrow focused aspect of our research career. And then the other bit that's sort of on top of that is other students who've had different or challenges along the way and overcome those challenges is that it makes you just more robust as a grouping. So, you know, the pandemic, you know, that work from home challenge, people who've had to, you know, deal with working in difficult situations because they've had a range of life experiences. It means that you're a little bit more accustomed to, you know, being understanding certainly and trying to set up accommodating spaces and, and forums for discussions so for instance we try to have as an example you know we have two meetings a week one of which is voluntary and one of which is strongly encouraged but there are different times of day because people have children people have caring commitments and so again balancing that and thinking because you have a range of people who are not all 
subservient to my whim as the principal investigator, but, you know, they have other drivers in their lives. They have other aspects and experiences to draw to it. It creates just a, a much more rich and sort of wholesome environment. And that's, you know, it, it also means I learn a lot more. You know, I know a huge, bit, a huge amount more about different countries around the world. I have much better understanding of circumstances beyond my own. I think, yeah, definitely a lot of the time it could just be lack of imagination, almost. Like people who, well, I mean, it, it could be people who haven't necessarily struggled. I think everyone in academia, because it's a tough career. So I think everyone has found it, you know, difficult at some point for various reasons. But I think we were talking to Jen Mel earlier about this, about how it's sort of almost expected that people below you experience those same hardships, which is it almost like, you know, like a rite of passage, which is a yeah, really tricky um, kind of mindset yeah. to get people to get out of. Like, you know, I had it hard. So people, other people must have it hard too. Yeah, and that's the, idea, the way it like, goes. Yeah. And the idea that like, that's what makes it worthwhile. Like, oh, it's so <laughs> impressive that you made it this far because it was so hard to get there. When that's the worst one. <laughs> it shouldn't be. Yeah. Like, yeah, don't glorify the struggle. Just make it easier and better and more accessible for people. And, 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 and some of this is, you know, I would never in the, if I ever have to put a learning objective down on a PhD thesis, that says, you know, you have to have a mental breakdown during writing up. You know, where in my right mind am I going to get that through any form of sensible human being? And yet we still have this idea that writing up should be this personal moment of turmoil where you, you know, disconnect from all your friends, you develop some form of addiction habit, either to caffeine, alcohol or other substances. This is just entirely ludicrous of this process. And, you know, one of the bits I champion of the sort of CDT model in this space is that, you know, you have a cohort of peers beyond your research group. So we break out of the fiefdom of expectation. There is a little bit more of peer correction. And, you know, your supervisor should not be doing that to you. That's very strange. How can I help you navigate around this space? That's a huge benefit to try and break some of these. Just this is the personal suffering that I've had as a supervisor. Therefore, all my students should have. And also just that other model just has, it's right for exploitation. It's just, you know, the power dynamics are entirely wrong. The idea, you know, science, we celebrate as collaboration, we celebrate as a shared endeavor. And this is really important as we specialize more and more. But just you're setting yourself up to fail if part of that process, if someone has that gatekeeping control towards your future, where you're no longer able to say, you know what, I really need a hardship fund because actually I have to fly home to see my parents because my, you know, one of my parents is currently going through a heart bypass, imagine, you know, as a discussion point. That moment of significant personal trauma where you're never going to sit later in life and go, you know, it was really great that I got one more, one more session on the microscope. No, you're going to say, actually, I, you know, I had the opportunity to, to live a fulfilled life that involved my work, perhaps, but I also could do all the other bits and pieces. I think that is like, a big thing and it's definitely an idea that I think is changing which is great but there I think traditionally there is that idea of like to do a successful PhD you have to work yourself into the ground you have to expect at least one mental breakdown you need to spend all of your time dedicated to this and if you don't it's because you don't care about your research or you don't care about this and like luckily that idea of is changing the idea of having a work-life balance is improving but I think people yeah, need to realize that 
not everyone is in the same circumstances. Like I'm not, someone is no less dedicated if they can't stay past five o'clock because they have to go work a second job to afford rent or to pay for kids or parents or different responsibilities. Everyone has different circumstances that take them away. And that doesn't mean you're any less dedicated to your PhD. And also, even if you don't have a second job, you still shouldn't exactly. have to stay past 6 p.m. Yeah. You should just still just work a normal dancing job. Dancing classes or you yeah. want to go to a new restaurant that's opened up. Like you're, you're not supposed to work yourself into the ground because you've heard rumors that that's a good thing to do. It's absolutely yeah. not a good thing to do. And I think that's something that's like kind of unique to PhD students, especially in the UK and Ireland, where you're not staff, but you're not student. And there seems to be like no set rules. There's you're, it's not like you're not paid to be in nine to five or whatever your hours are. But there is kind of the expectation that, oh, you'll be in the office once other people are or like, oh, you, I'll stay late and or I'll come in at the weekend because that's when the microscope is free. And I think sometimes PhDs in particular fall into this weird line where there are no set rules and people end up feeling like they have to do so much more. So I think two bits to, to go on this. So one, you can often end up with the one person standing up in the theatre problem. So this is the idea that in order for that person to get a better view, they stand up. Of course, if the whole theatre stands up, everybody's tired by the end of the performance and exhausted and no longer enjoying themselves. And that same thing happens for some parts. Of course, we have detention to, you mentioned microscopy access. You know, these equipment are very expensive, but if someone is working on a weekend, I'm very quick to say, please take time off and leave. You know, if you want to be excused, just tell me and try and make and create, curate a space where people are comfortable to tell me enough. I'm not being intrusive, power dynamics, etc., but I'm not being intrusive to let people have that time off in order that they can maximize their own, how they're going to access the work in this space. I've got a question and I was trying to find it quickly off the top of, off of it here. How much holiday leave do you all have and how much do you know that you have and how much I, do you take? Mm-hmm. I don't know and I couldn't find an answer <laughs> uh, I, I think I read sorry go on Becky oh so I know UCL have the closure times and then kind of beyond that I'm I'm not 100% sure I'm not sure if I've read anything official I didn't get anything, any direct information from my supervisor about it, but I think I saw something on Imperial's page about like maybe something as high as, dare I say, like 90 something days. Is that right? Yeah, so it's off the order <laughs> and like two months of holiday in a year is effectively what you have access to. But yeah, there's actually a formal amount of holiday that you're, you're allowed to take within the, so it's, it's effectively set up things within terms and conditions. So very briefly for governance and how this stuff works, UKRI, so UK Research and Innovation, our parent funding council, then has sub-council, EPSRC, Engineering and Physical Science Research Council. That then effectively, the universities are bids to get the doctoral training partnerships. As part of that, there are terms and conditions which are imposed. And in that, effectively, there is an expectation for how much holiday you have. There are standard terms with respect to holiday in that. And I would suggest that simply by the fact that none of us know exactly what the number is and where it is, does, you know, highlight the unfairness and that lack of ability for us to understand or you know, put perspective on our rights to, to time off in this space. And I would go one step further is that this then creates, I've overworked for a lot of my life. And, and this is one of the reasons why I'm moving institutions is actually I just need to, I'm fed up of driving this car. I need to find a new car to drive in this space because at the moment it's just not going to be healthy for me long-term. 
and it's taken and I'm fairly robust with respect to now having you know when I go home and how I think of my time and stand back and push on these things and advocate this with students and staff in my research group however I'm well aware that that is unusual and abnormal. So just to wrap up if there's anyone listening who wants to do a PhD or is doing a PhD but is struggling financially what would your kind of message to them be? Oh that's a a good question. Uh, So if you're struggling financially or otherwise um, I would love to pretend that a PhD is a cheap option and I think it would be disingenuous for me to, to say otherwise but that being said if I was to give uh, sort of one piece of advice for students looking towards a PhD is don't let yourself be taken for granted don't let your time be undervalued in this space uh, and make sure that you are paid for what you have done and that you are getting value for your time for for how you're spending it. Yeah thanks so much for talking to us today it's been really interesting to hear from the perspective of someone who has gone through the level that we're at you know like further on in the academic career and someone who actually cares and thinks about these sort of issues uh, really deeply. Um, so yeah, thank you for coming. Thank you very, very much. much. Thank you for taking yeah. time. Thanks so much for listening to that episode. It was a fascinating chat that we had with Ben and we'd just like to give a big shout out to him for giving up his time to talk to us. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you learned a lot from this chat. We certainly did. And see you next time. This podcast was produced in collaboration with People Power. People Power is a community passionate about sustainability and empowering people to change the world. We are very grateful for all the help and advice that they gave us.